Art History After Modernism by Hans Belting Chapter 1 Modernism in the Mirror of Contemporary Culture Epilogues for Art or for Art History Those commenting on art or art history today see each theory they might seek to promote already devalued by any number of other theories. One can no longer take a position that has not already been advanced in another form. It is best to insist on the standpoint one has decided upon and to accept that others will find it mistaken or, if they agree, probably have misunderstood it. This is a time of monologue, not of dialogue. Naturally, common themes still exist, but those who share them may understand them in very different ways. One of these common themes is the epilogue. Epilogues have been fashionable for so long that one would dearly like to write an epilogue on the age of the epilogue. It is not important whether these epilogues refer to the end of history, of modernism, or of painting. The important thing is the continued need for epilogues that characterizes an age. Where nothing, is, where nothing new is discovered, and the old is no longer the familiar, an epilogue is what suggests itself. But today the epilogue is also a mask, quick to express reservations about one's own opinions in order to avoid overstraining the reader's or listener's tolerance. Whether referring to art or culture, history or utopia, each concept is put in quotation marks to permit its continued use while demonstrating the requisite degree of skepticism. One also expects another different understanding, but not consensus. Each concept is tagged with a visiting card that introduces its user and serves to confine the general concept to an individual sense. Anyone speaking about culture is soon informed that such a thing no longer really exists except on a market of the media. Concepts and theories have met the same fate that art met long ago. The only way they find legitimacy is by simultaneously calling themselves into question. Of course, many earn their living by contributing to the changes in the debate that keep it alive. But today, theory, whatever it acquits itself of, is geared toward epilogue in all its themes and speech rules, just as at the outset of modernism it had the aspect of prologue being militantly future-addicted and intolerant of the present. In the past, the enemy was the very notion of history that we fear to lose today, since what we now treat as history is the same modernism that they once hoped to bring into being. An epilogue to a former paradigm measures the present against models it can no longer satisfy. In our case, this model is the culture of modernism, with which we identify ourselves just as emphatically as our forebears once identified themselves with religion and the nation. 
This collective identity is not linked with a part of the world, but with a nostalgia for battles and utopias in which all eyes focused on an ideal future. The loss of such a perspective does not, however, mean the end of modernism, but rather the impossibility of ending it, since we possess no alternative to it. This is the reason why I sympathize with the term "submodernity" or "hypermodernity," as it was coined by the French anthropologist Marc Auger to define our present time. Modernity has taken a thousand shapes, and we argue about whether it lives on in them, or whether it has already been abandoned. History, too, long since and for good reason declared dead, refuses to lie down and ubiquitously continues to make heard its unsolicited voice. Finally, the classical arts, which we have so often ceremoniously and finally left behind us. Continue to exist as if against all expectations, and derive new power and freedom from precisely this fact. Yet this does not mean that we still live with the old challenges and opportunities that once obsessed classic modernism. Every glance at this modernism can only be retrospective, as it emphasizes our different situation. And the new cultural experience clearer than ever. This is why the argument as to whether the present still retains the old profile of so-called modernism has long been superfluous. We are in the process of expanding the concept of modernism, just as we have always expanded the concept of art, whenever we wished to continue doing it. The new media arts, to give one example, react to a media world that, as is well known, did not even exist in classic modernism. The media are inherently global and thus suspend all regional and individual cultural experience. They reach and adapt themselves to everyone, which is why their chief purpose becomes became the consumption of information and entertainment. At a high level of technology and a low level of ideas, the commonplace concept of art can no longer cope with this. Everyone knows that art, with an implied capital A, has meanwhile fragmented into a spectrum of resistant phenomena that are accepted as art long before we are able to define them. The very loss of a binding definition of art. Prevents us from holding a well-founded position on media art. The question is not whether the media arts are capable of being art, but whether artists are willing to create art with the new technologies. Art is still bound to an artist who uses it for his or her personal expression, and to a viewer under this spell. That makes it the secret opponent of technology, whose raison d'être. Is functionality, and whose information is geared not toward a spectator, but toward a user. This is why technology has always been indifferent to every personal worldview, as has as it had always been mirrored in art. 
put in extreme terms, technology does not interpret the given world, but invents a technological world in which all physical and spatial reality is suspended. It thus dramatizes the crisis of individualism that has emerged in modernism, and since the exhaustion of bourgeois culture, Philosophers have already declared the human in a text as superfluous or outmoded, and the new artistic currents are being acclaimed as post-human, a slogan containing the most terrible and, one hopes, the most erroneous epilogue in our time. At the same time, a gradual counter-movement is forming in the sense that it is precisely media whose audiences continue a belief in new technology that trigger a call to return to personal and physical reality. The body is the theme of philosophical conferences and also emerges as the target of new installations, such as those by Gary Hill. Film directors like Peter Grenaway forsake the world of the surrogate as it emerged on celluloid, and in video photography, and organize exhibitions that physically involve the viewers. The good old stage play of all things, which once claimed appearances as its own prerogative, has now become a refuge for lost reality, for it is far more real than any analogical or digital medium can ever be. But the problem of how to make use of new technology and how to gear it to a new aesthetic has accompanied the discussion of modernism from the beginning. The debate has always suffered from the fact that the innovators were in open conflict with tradition, while the others always defended every inch of it. In the process, each side invoked the famous logic of history in their attempt to win the argument, and, in, and the analyses assumed the character of epilogues. But there were two intentions involved, break with or defense of the old. Incidentally, this has been the case for as long as bourgeois culture has existed. It had to be sufficient unto itself, and yet continued to worship models from history that it could no longer live up to. Modernism thrived on the contradiction between these two models, the one turned toward the future and the one toward tradition, and thus found a necessary resistance against its own utopias. The practice of culture, as soon as it became politicized, inflicted such deep wounds in the 20th century that, in retrospect, its victories appear just as doubtful as its defeats appear justified. Today, modernism itself has become tradition, which is why its guardians are so ready to conjure it up, again, in an epilogue, while its opponents, true to the proven pattern, are all the quicker to announce the end of a modernism they never cared for. Whether we were talking about the loss of aura that Walter Benjamin saw as a historic opportunity for new art, or of the loss of the center lamented by Hans Settelmayer in a modernism gone off the rails, 
The epilogue was always handy. The same is true of the deconstruction of the concept of the work, which was augured from such phenomena as fluxus or concept art. The individual work that, as a museum picture, represented a norm in the public's appreciation of art, appeared to have been replaced by a fleeting artistic spectacle in which there were now only spectators and bystanders. In media art, videotapes only are visible as long as they have been played, or installations before they are dismantled. The permanence once inherent in the presence of art is thus replaced by rapid impressions that fit the fleeting nature of modern perception. For some decades, the pressure on art to innovate has been increasing as the possibilities for innovation in the fine arts have dwindled. The pace of new artistic invention is accelerating, but the weight of these innovations has diminished in the same measure as has their ability to shape a new style. Several styles have long been allowed to exist side by side, and artistic production no longer carries the banner of progress that has been replaced by the frivolous or lethargic remake. The institutional culture of modernism that adopted progress as a program of identity has become an exercise of memory. Looking back over classic modernism in light of present practice, we notice a range of fundamental changes that elude all simple comparisons as the following topics make clear. From today's distance, modernism's erstwhile universal claim proves to be a view that was never ready for globalization. Modernism's erstwhile goal of freedom from taboos lost its value when art lost its ability to provoke. Belief in the ideal of a technological world of art as a living environment for humankind was supplanted by the fear of the loss of nature. The challenge to bourgeois culture presented by an anti-bourgeois avant-garde invented by modernism collapsed because the demise of the bourgeoisie also meant the loss of the avant-garde's enemy. This debate on the image of an elite culture loses its meaning on the level of a mass culture in which everyone can make his or her own choice. Finally, history, the locus of identity or of contradiction, lost its authority to the same extent that it became omnipresent and malleable. This also means that art history can no longer be the guiding image of our historical culture, which brings us to our theme. The meaning of art history in today's culture. When I published the first draft of the present book in 1983, under the German title, Das Ende der Kunstgeschichte, The End of Art History, I appeared to be contributing to the production of epilogues. But I did not intend to write an obituary for art or for art history. Instead, I asked myself whether art and the narration of art
to which we had grown accustomed, were still compatible. The opportunity to publish a new book on the same topic is also a chance to review and update the argument. This is possible only in the individual steps I undertake in the following chapters. But I must again insist on the initial argument that the rhetorical figure of speech dealing with the end of art history does not mean that art or art history is over, but that both in art and the discourse of art history, we can foresee on the horizon the end of a tradition whose familiar shape had become, in the era of modernism, canonical. I spoke of the farewell to the guiding model of an art history with an internal logic, which was favored in describing shifts of style from one period to another. The more art history as a coherent discourse disintegrated, the more it was absorbed into the whole cultural and social environment of which it was a part. The debate about method lost its edge, and historians replaced the one mandatory art history with several or even many art histories that exist side by side, much as do today's artistic styles. Artists, for their part, took leave of a linear conception of history that had forced them to carry art into the future, while waging war against its old form. They freed themselves from both a model and an incompatible history, and they abandoned such old genres and media whose rules constantly demanded progress to keep the game going. No longer did artists continually reinvent art, for it had been institutionally and commercially established, incidentally with the admission that it was and remained a fiction, thus denying art's relevance to real life. Art critics ceased writing art history in the old sense, and artists stopped paying their debt to this kind of art history. Thus, the old play is interrupted if we haven't already been to a new play for some time, while we continue to consult the old textbooks, therefore failing to understand what happens. Talk of an end should not be confused with a longing for an end of art itself, which, like a picture in its frame, found a fitting framework in art history. The ideal art history was a narrative of the meaning and course of historical art. If today the image bursts out of its old frame, then we have reached the end of an old and most successful academic game. It was the frame that turned all it contained into a picture. It was art history that gathered the art of previous centuries into the picture, where we learned to see it. Only the frame provided inner cohesion to the image. Everything within it was, as art, privileged over everything outside, just as in a museum, which collects and displays only art that has already gone down in art history. The age of art history as an academic discipline coincides with the age of the museum. The age of art history 
Once again, we must define concepts. The idea of a general history of art was not established until the 19th century, while the material it gradually accumulated came from all previous centuries and millennia. Let us put it another way. Art had long been produced without any idea that it was fulfilling the course of art history. The comparison with a museum su suggests itself again. Museums, too, filled up with artistic works that were created long before such institutions existed and without reference to them. But later, artists lived with museums and conscious of the idea of art history, or else in opposition to it. We can distinguish the age of art history from all other ages that still lacked a framework for viewing art. My argument addresses this framework. It seems that taking art out of this frame has led to a new and uncertain art discourse that transfers itself onto art itself. Accordingly, artists have for some time abandoned what they call the rigid frame of artistic genres, which they find restrictive. They believe the public is also forced into a rigid stare at such a frame, even if, at the, as at the movies, the frame contains a great deal of movement. Every genre proved to be a frame defining what was to become art. But the meaning of the frame, which keeps the viewer at a passive distance, also applies to the general situation in which culture manifests itself. It appears that the prevalent concept of culture was restricted to that of a historical culture that might, in retrospect, just as easily be resisted as, as revered. The struggle over art and life is, therefore, telling, suggesting, as it does, that art was only found outside life's reach. In the museum, in the concert hall, in books. The, expert gaze, the expert's gaze at a framed picture was a metaphor for the cultivated person's attitude to culture as an ideal. He or she always remained the audience, while artists and philosophers made culture. Today, in contrast, people no longer appropriate culture for themselves, but like a collective spectacle. There may be several reasons for this, for example, that we are not as much producing culture, but reproducing the culture of other times. And therefore, the desire is growing for culture that is entertaining rather than instructing, and that offers a spectacle in which we take part. Artists react to this desire for entertainment and are performing art history as remake with a mixture of nostalgia and freedom that rejects the historical authority of art. Rather than continuing to represent culture and history, Art engages in either rituals of remembrance or, depending on the given audience, resistance. New exhibition types confirm the observation that the relationship between culture and art is shifting, 
providing another argument for the end of art's true history. Until now, it was taken for granted that art exhibitions were about art and served the experience of art history. In the sense of autonomous art, now, more and more exhibitions are staging culture or history as art's messages for a viewer of a museum rather than the reader of a book. The reason for organizing such exhibitions has less to do with art itself than with culture, whose visible performance requires art to be convincing. For the biennial in 1995, Jean-Claire's concept was not a retrospective of modern art, but, under the title Identity and the Other, a synopsis of ideas about mankind and human nature in which art was to mirror the dramatic changes in the concept of the body, and especially of the self. Since art has always been a privileged category of culture, it enjoyed full autonomy on its own terrain, where it felt free not only from social constraints, but also from other cultural tasks. It was a culture's pride to tolerate free art and allow it to run its own course. Encroachments came from outside whenever art was forced into an ideological or political mold. But today, claims to get hold of art are increasing and are not primarily ideological or political. Rather, the culture is mustering its last reserves to achieve recognition. It rises or falls with a business of self-promotion, whereby art is requested to act as a convincing mirror. Such general observations leave aside the question of who participates in and who profits from art history. Artists, art historians, and art critics do not share the same image of art history, in which, nevertheless, they are all involved. The alliance between artists and critics, both of whom had a share in the production of art history, was long put to an uncertain test. Artists were responsible for the future, art historians for the past. History, which would bring out who was right in art, was the concern of critics and historians, although this ceased to be true when marketing strategies of galleries began to dictate what would make subsequent art history. For a long time, the battle between art historians and artists was fought at the doors of the museum, which one group strove to defend from the other. This too changed after each side wanted to have the last word in the museum and to turn a temple into a stock exchange of art. Now, museums and art fairs can hardly be distinguished from each other. Works seen at art fairs have already found their way into museums elsewhere. Artists, who for so long resisted the authority of art history, now became its beneficiaries. The less they were able to speak with their work alone, the more they invoked a history that gave their art meaning. They themselves continued the path of history when they continued to produce art, 
and they followed history when borrowing from history their models. Sometimes a work is better explained by the time it recalls than by the time to which it belongs. Artists today use the history of art against low art and popular taste for cultural recollection of what the meaning of art has been. Art has long since ceased to be an elitist affair. It now is requested to represent cultural identity where the institutions fail to do so. Experts are no longer required to judge, but only carry out the expected ritual. Where art no longer creates conflict, but guarantees a conflict-free zone within society, experts cease to offer orientation. Where there is no expert, there is also no lay public. These observations remain valid, despite the unprecedented boom that both the art scene and the academic discipline of art history are enjoying. We have reached the climax of a development marked by an explosion in the number of artists and galleries. In New York, whole areas of the city are refurbished when the artists and galleries move in. The success of art, which, provided it is modern and preferably contemporary, is also collected by banks and hung in public offices, is not affected by complaints of art's blurred profile. Pandora's box gives each his own so that the investment advisor replaces the art expert in social prestige. The success of art depends on who collects it, not on who makes it. This boom is matched by the boom in art history. In Germany, for instance, the huge crowds of art history students are significant for the book market. The Dictionary, Dictionary of Art, published by Macmillan, with 533,000 entries on world art in 34 volumes, is a sign of the worldwide development of interest in this field. The posters announce this event with the astonishing news that 6,700 scholars have joined together to change the world of art history. The team of editors consists of just 12 well-known scholars, one of whom has already died, yet the number of art historians in business today must outrival the 6,700 listed here, since no one I know has worked on this project. The world of art history has grown very large, so large that it now communicates through dictionaries, and this produces a situation in which the former meaning and the cultural norm of a single definitive art history fade away. Art theory finds itself in a similar situation. In the realm of the humanities, Art theory has split up among so many different disciplines and professional groups that it says more about the discipline in which it is practiced than about the art to which it refers. This has also been true of the philosophy of art ever since philosophical aesthetics fell into the hands of specialists who write philosophy's own history, 
but have no new models to offer. The few models to arise in the last century, I mention here only Jean-Paul Sartre, Martin Heidegger, and Theodore W. Adorno, emerged within the framework of a personal philosophy. They were as incapable of founding a dominant theory of art as art was to attain inner unity. Artist theories have seized the space previously occupied by art theory. Where there is no general theory of art, artists assume the right to express their own personal theory in their work. A collection of essays edited by Dieter Heinrich and Wolfgang Euser in 1982 concluded that there is no longer any integrative art theory. In its place are many limited liability theories following each other, each dissolving art's aesthetic unity and chopping it up into aspects. Discussing the functions of art is preferred to discussing art itself, and aesthetic experience itself is no longer self-explanatory. Many concepts we read harmonize surprisingly well with contemporary art forms that suspend historical systems of symbols and link them back to individual functions in the social process. If a work of art oscillates between the mere idea of art and a mere object, then what it loses is the old claim for autonomy. If work transforms itself into theory, or conversely, if it denies any aesthetic profile that art theory would distinguish from the everyday world, then classical art theory rapidly loses its ground. The problem, if it still is one, arises only where the philosophy of art asserts a monopoly, which in modernism is as impossible to sustain as the idea of a linear and homogeneous art theory. Why should there be many art currents if they all fit into a single theory? Theories, works of art, and art movements all, view, all view, vie with each other on the same level. Even discourses adopt a playful, polemical, and artistic form something previously known only in creative practice. A new anthology of more than 1,100 pages presenting 20th century art in theory in a solely chronological succession is, in its colorful variety, like art history itself, and is fittingly subtitled An Anthology of Changing Ideas. In 1984, at the same time as my previous essay appeared, Arthur C. Danto published his views about the end of art history, which coincide with a statement on art theory. In the revised version of 1989 that appeared in the periodical Grand Street, he maintains that now, after art had started to pose the philosophical question about the essence of art, it was doing philosophy in the medium of art, 
and was therefore leaving its old territory behind. In his earlier publication, The Transfiguration of the Commonplace, Danto had already insisted on the fact that art, no longer phenomenologically distinguishable from everyday objects, yielded to become a philosophical act. In a Hegelian phrase, he added that art has come to its end by becoming something else, namely philosophy. From now on, we read, artists no longer are required to define art for themselves, and thus also are freed from their previous history, in which they had to do what philosophy now could do for them. I have exaggerated his point in order to reveal a philosopher's dream within it. But the question Danto posed has been intrinsic to art history for a long time, perhaps as long as anyone has reflected on art. The question has long raised the suspicion that the notion of art could be a fiction. This view of a phantom was only overcome where the arts, as a plurality of artistic genres with a writable history, took its place. That is why Danto is right in saying that an end to art, in the sense of a particular narrative of the history of art, can be conceived of only within the framework of an internal history, outside of which no predictions can be made and therefore can be no talk of an end. We can now discern what is stirring people's minds when art loses the internal mirror of all the particular genres in which it has been created for so long. This is where progress, the life force of the individual arts, ceases to keep the old sense. Progress is exchanged for the concept of the remake. Let's repeat what has been done before. Any new manifestation is no better, but also no worse. And yet it comes as a reflection on previous art, where the latter could not yet reflect on itself. The genres always provided a solid framework, which now begins to dissolve. Art history was a framework of a different kind, designed to put art's course in perspective. This is why the end of art history is also the end of a story, either because the story is changing or because there is, in the received sense, nothing more to tell. Such media as we know today, film, video, etc., approach the same problem whenever they are summoned to perform the drama of art and are equally liable to lose their proven profile. In an interview Peter Grenaway gave in 1994, he justifies himself for questioning movie production while gradually preferring to put on exhibitions. It is the situation of cinema whose fixed frame already held the viewer's gaze as much as in painting that he wishes to abandon. That is why Grenaway tends to rework some films for the stage, although he, consist he considers the stage too as restricting the audience's aesthetic experience. 
All rules and structures are simply constructs from which it is difficult to free oneself. Grinaway, art historian and artist in one, kept returning to the old masters in his study of lighting and composition, and thus ceased to pay customs to the guardians of modernism. He sees technology as a means of expression, and therefore as a constant, and not just a modern precondition for art. On the one hand, Grenaway admits in his interview he would like to release a Baroque Gestanton's work in which the audience experiences the natural world as if in a film. On the other hand, he has recently made a black and white film whose theme is that history does not exist, but is construed by historians. In making such statements, Grenaway casts himself as a protagonist in a culture of post-history in which the end of art history as a narrow framework is unavoidable. Art scholarship is unable to treat this theme with the same freedom, because to do so would risk its own legitimization. It prefers to engage in the allegory of its own tradition, or in the archaeology of its accumulated knowledge, as found, for instance, in Donald Preziosi's book, Rethinking Art History. The book sees itself as a series of connected prolegomena for a history that will have to be written if we want to know where it is going. In other words, a clarification of the real story of art history as produced by the specialized literature. A chapter on Paleolithic art, which, as we know, never drew the discipline's attention, arrives at the paradoxical conclusion that because art as we know it did not exist in the distant prehistoric past, it is also questionable today whether we have a proper understanding of art. In the final chapter, the author punningly leaves it to the reader to decide whether to read the title as referring to the end or the ends, i.e. purposes, of art history. The text concludes with a description of the Acropolis as if seen through the frame formed by the Propylaea, much as art history can be understood only in the light of its own narrative. The frame is the continually recurring notion in today's discussions, whereas we had previously failed to notice it. In our case, Preziosi's discovery that all art history was a theory of history is the discovery of the frame. The end of art history is practiced today in a multitude of books that never even mention this end. Our own culture is no longer the stern judge before whom we have to justify our scholarship, but rather a beautiful stranger we encounter on the path to seduction. In other words, there are many ways to get lost in the labyrinth of historical culture once Ariadne's thread had been broken. 
In doing so, we now use our ancestors' original motifs to interrogate the exercise of art history. In a book published by in 1994 on Winkelmann and the origins of art history, Alex Potts poses an unsettling question about the fascination for naked marble figures, or to quote the title, the question of flesh and the ideal. The question is answered with a homoerotic close-up photograph of a detail of the statue of Antonus, the once famous lover of Emperor Hadrian, in the Vatican Belvedere. But our historical distance from the homosexual writer Winkelmann and his archaeology is subtly substantiated by Walter Pater, who published a Winkelmann essay in England in 1867 in order to express his theory concerning perverse sexual self-experience in cultural education and criticism. Admiring for his own part, as Potter puts it, the sexless beauty of the Greek statues. Potts continues, It would be somewhat anachronistic to envisage Potter as exploring what we would call a gay identity. We are with him, nevertheless, on the boundaries of a new modern consciousness of sexuality as playing an essential role in definitions of the self.